0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit
2: mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network
3: Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-owner and co-chef of Samisa Restaurant in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Each week on The Line, I invite a chef, a restaurateur, or a food business owner to come have a one-on-one chat with me to discuss the trajectory of their career. What we all want to know when we see a chef or a business owner is how did that person get from point A to point B? What decisions did that person make that impacted the course of their career and their life? Was it a first job? Was it cooking with grandma? Or was a fluke chance meeting with uh, another chef or cooking person that led them down the career path to come to become who they are today. So, today we're talking with Claire Welly. She was born outside of Baltimore and she attended the Culinary Institute of America. She's cooked in San Francisco and washington d c and some of the best kitchens here in New York and she now leads the kitchen at Otway, which is in Clinton Hill. Claire, thanks for being here.
4: Good afternoon.
3: so let's begin by talking about the short lived but really wonderful tilda all day. How did that project come to be? How did you get involved
4: um Samantha Safer and I have known each other for a few years now. We worked at a really small specialty goods store. Um, I was coming off of a really, really bad job. I weighed like 98 pounds and like that specialty goods store was basically my rehab for a few months. So we met uh, and we just stayed in touch. She's always wanted to open up a restaurant, own something. And so one day I, I got the call. That's it
3: and so when she when you got that call did she say i'm doing an all day cafe it's going to be here do you want to be the chef or was it like blank slate and you are collaborating like how much were you involved in that process
4: um she knew that you know we wanted an all day concept the neighborhood needed something where you know there was bread there was caffeine there was alcohol um it was really lacking uh, in that moment in time in clinton hill so uh, it was kind of a blank slate. We could create what we wanted. We were the bosses. Uh, we didn't answer to anybody. And so we just kind of came up with this great concept of, like, all-day food, no fuss, really approachable, but, like, great technique.
3: Tilda's was a beautiful space. It was a wonderful place. Yeah. It had a lot of amazing light. Yeah. And uh, you were doing very interesting things there that I, I hope were making you happy after after that uh, un- unfortunate— yeah. bl- previous job, but Tilda's didn't last. No. S- uh, Sam and, uh, your other partner at that time, Daniel, they did end up in court. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this cause I know it's been covered a little bit, but I am curious about your perspective. Um, what happened that forced you to have to leave the project and what did you learn from that experience? Yeah. I
4: mean, Tilda was a really great moment in time. I'm still very proud of what we got to accomplish there. Um, the people that I got to meet, the foundations that were laid, um, you know. But working with small business owners and creative people, you know, personalities clash, and that's all it was. It was like when you find a restaurant owner, or when you go trail to restaurant. I don't. It's like it's like just going on a date, you know, and the chemistry just wasn't there. So, pretty simple, pretty. Drama free, Yeah, we went to court, but like it was it's you know, they were business partners. And that's just what has to happen when you break up.
3: So when Tilda ceased to exist in between Tilda and Otway, did you do anything to recharge? Like what? How did you spend your time? Because there was a uh, how, how long was the gap in between um, six months? Maybe,
4: maybe six months, maybe. Um, no, I didn't. Uh, I let's see. Tilda ended uh, sometime in the summer like right before our year anniversary and two days later i started going on trails wow i'm a working cook i gotta Uh pay rent you know um i still enjoy what i do i love producing i love cooking i am a cook um so i started going on trails and i was like okay where's my next paycheck coming from uh and i found this lovely lovely brand new restaurant in the west village called king uh and it's two brits and they're fantastic jess claire and then annie's in the front of the house and it was fantastic. It was a really great moment for me to just like cook again with people that loved doing it.
3: So you weren't running the kitchen? No. Oh uh, God, no. So no. you came in as like I'm a, co- a, I'm, a line I'm cook was physician? A line
4: oh yeah, absolutely. Like no ego, mm-hmm. like absolutely no ego. And I, you know, I have to pay the rent and to enjoy the beautiful anonymity of being a line cook again, like writing my prep list on my Seafold and like drinking out of my pint container and having my shift drink. It, I love that. So, um, yeah, no, I wasn't in charge at all. It was great. They had it on lockdown, and I just went in and cooked.
3: That's cool. That's That actually is fairly rare that that would occur, that you would, you know, be in a leadership position, and then something happens, and then you have to just take yeah. on a job, which is, you know, the reality of it. Um, and then you get this new opportunity mm-hmm. to come back to Otway. So yeah. how does Sam – approach you and what is that uh what is that process that that sort of takes you from king back into this new new old space
4: yeah i, I uh, it was um i was just kind of starting to get the itch again to uh do my type of food um which is just french to be honest with you really like i guess in its most simplistic form it's just french uh king was italian so i learned a lot but it just didn't feel as natural as um i needed it to feel so I just started thinking about projects and what to do and what to do. And um, Samantha had the space, you know. So we just started talking about concepts and what would make us happy. And we just realized that, like, dinner service, not being open seven nights a week, not doing not doing lunch, uh, no delivery. We just started talking about the things that we didn't want. Um, and from the things that we didn't want grew the thing that we did want, which was Otway, a place where – we could have a great time, have quality of life, put out great food, show technique, be be happy, uh, teach. And then, yeah, uh, yeah. And then just it was our own. It just became our own.
3: You made an interesting business decision, which so you alluded to the fact, you know, quality of life. Yeah. But you also said that Tilda was something that satisfied a, a void in the neighborhood, in the marketplace, mm-hmm. which was that there wasn't a really a great place to get really delicious handcrafted pastries and excellent coffee and uh, in the sort of rebranding of the space the reopening of it you moved away from that Mm -hmm. was that really hard for you both to say that uh we really had a success with tilda from maybe from like a customer facing perspective but internally you guys were you both made a decision both of you together that That wasn't an ideal anymore.
4: I live in the neighborhood. I live a half a block away from the restaurant, so I kind of feel like I am also my client. Um, I'm also my guest, and there was there's a there's a few great places in Clinton Hill to get wine to get dinner service. Um, But there's always a need for more, and that's we just filled a niche. Like our guests, our community has been so gracious in letting us evolve. We've been able to evolve. They've never been like no, I don't want you to keep doing what you're doing. No, I don't want you to be happy. No, I don't want to see what's next. Like, it was, we kind of set the tone with Tilda, like, let us show you what's next. So, it was actually really, really great, the, the warm welcome from the community.
3: I'm curious about that. So, do you see yourself actually, you're a neighborhood restaurant? Is that how you kind of view yourself?
4: I mean, I view us as a restaurant that serves dinner. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds so simplistic and just so... Um, I don't know. It's just we serve dinner. Like, that's what we do. We do dinner. Mm. Um, and, yeah, if we fill in a niche in the neighborhood, if we're a destination restaurant because we are in Clinton Hill and it's hard to get to, um, I just don't like to – I don't know. I don't like to be pigeonholed.
3: I want to talk – a little bit about pigeonholing. I'm interested. That's, that's funny that you said that word. You lead me to my next question, which is the Gothamist article about the relaunch of Otway had Mm -hmm. this line in it. Samantha Safer and Claire Welle have tapped an all female team to run the kitchen. Someday this will just be normal and awesome. But until that day, it's noteworthy. The village voice review referenced your all female kitchen as well. Pretty much every single article that I found on you (laughs) while I was doing research for this references the all female kitchen. And now here I am a guy asking you about it as well. So, What are your thoughts on this as sort of, like, Mm. uh, fetishization of, like, an all-female kitchen? Um, I'm curious if you're at all happy that it's being called out. And I'm also... I want to ask you, are you annoyed that it's newsworthy? Like, can you unpack this a little bit and how it makes you feel?
4: How it makes me feel. (laughs) My emotions. (laughs) Um, uh, Okay, so... I'm grateful for any press that our small restaurant gets um, so no i doesn't I don't get upset about it. however, I do now approach it with like, okay, yes, it it is an all female kitchen, but can you think of something else to talk about like <laughs> give me give me something else, give me a different point of view. Let's have a different conversation right um in the restaurant business, it doesn't matter. Male, female, black, white, it doesn't matter. If you can hold down on a Saturday night and put the food up at the same time as your station partner, it doesn't matter what you are. And so for years, I never had to think, oh, I'm, I'm a female. I'm a woman cook. I was just another one of the cooks on the line. Um, so I don't think about it. But when it came to Otway, we had this like very specific concept, these very, like, high standards, these details that we wanted to achieve. And when we put that out there, when we put that level of care out there into the world, it attracted a very certain type of cook. And it attracted, like, all of the people that I've cooked with in my, like, previous lives. And we're all friends. Yes, we all happen to be women, but it was just more about the standards.
3: There's this... Obsessiveness of food media to create lists and to then put people on lists. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, cheap eats, uh, best restaurant on Fulton Street open only for dinner. You know, know. like there's all these ways that you have to fit into those grooves. And I hear what you're saying about sort of like playing the game and also. Yeah, you know, you want the press. Absolutely. You know, it helps the restaurant in the end, right? We need paychecks. We need to pay our staff. We Turns need to, out money's a thing. We need to keep the lights <laughs> on, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm, I'm curious though, like in terms of menus, it doesn't really seem like you are playing the game because I love your menu construction, and also it reads. In a way that I don't find traditional, yeah. and so for the listeners at home, just in case you're driving or something, I I want to talk about one of the a, a couple of the things on the menu that I, that I think are really cool. So there are um, the construction and contents are. are, are unique because they're like juxtaposed with like a crowd pleaser, but then not. So I yeah. guess what I'm saying is like the gem lettuce salad is something that I don't mean to like denigrate it in any way, but Absolutely it's definitely not. something that people come in and they can wrap their heads around, but then salad. you sort of go down the list a little bit and it's like, you've got duck, not yeah. everyone's favorite mm-hmm. thing. You've got a smoked tongue. Yeah. I'd say that's very out there for Anywhere, mm. any restaurant, and then the pork has blood sauce on it.
4: Absolutely. So, of course, <laughs>
3: to me as an eater, I'm sure for you as a cook, like this is awesome. You yeah. get to play around with the stuff that you want. Um, I'm curious, like, do you on purpose right now not have a chicken and a steak on the menu? Is that intentional in any way? I'll never have chicken on the menu. Cool. So, so tell <laughs> me, tell me about like what, are, what do you do with the menu? How do you build your menu and what makes it on and what doesn't make it on
4: okay uh yeah so this is a, this is you just opened up like okay let's so you have to inspire your cooks right you have to have you have to bring talent to your restaurant and by having a menu that never changes by having chicken by having you know a fish that nobody likes to work with you're going to only attract a very specific type of cook so it's 50-50 50% of me has to please my my guests. And then 50% of me has to please my staff. Um, we have to teach, we have to keep it fun. We have to be motivated. We have to work with the seasons. Um, like it just so happens in the last couple of weeks, we able to put rhubarb and asparagus, but for three months it was rutabaga. So, uh, you have to inspire. And then two, I just like to cook this style of food and, Yes, it doesn't appeal to everybody, but actually, this menu is a lot more approachable than our opening menu. Um, we had tripe on there, we had sweetbreads on there, um, so yeah, we had oh, we had something else that was like, oh my god. Um, anyway, but I just. I like to work with these ingredients. They're delicious. They require a lot of technique. Like, offals just require a very specific technique for the specific type of cut. Um, it keeps it interesting. And I like the response when people are like, wow, I didn't think I liked that. And now I like it. Because they maybe hadn't had it done well. Think about having chicken livers, like, just cooked to shit. Oh, sorry. Can I say? I'm yeah. sorry. OK. Just totally cooked <laughs> to shit. And then you think, oh, I don't like that. And then when you finally have it done well, you're like, oh, my God, I like this. I'm going to eat it for the rest of my life. Like, to see that moment is great.
3: It's cool that you're kind of going for... what you want and what your staff wants, and then you're like almost secondary, hoping to educate your customer into that. <sighs> it's
4: such a fine line.
3: So that is a fine line. How do you and Samantha and the and your front of house staff and I don't know if the, your cooks bring out food and touch tables there. Oh, but absolutely. So the the interaction between your staff yeah. and the customer, you are in an area where there is a ton of foot traffic, and I, I would assume that some people come in for dinner and they don't even look at the menu and then they sit down mm-hmm. and. They might be looking for, you know, Mm -hmm. they might be looking for that steak frites or whatever, which you're probably not going to ever have on the menu. So what is that that kind of communication and education process like in Otway to convey what you are thinking in your head and what's going on in the back kitchen so that what ends up on the plate doesn't seem so foreign to the customer?
4: So we don't approach it ever by thinking about educating our guests. We are like we have a philosophy, we have a concept, and we have a menu. Yes, but it's never like okay, let's educate them, and then they'll understand the food, and then they'll enjoy it because they they know about. It. No, it's not. We don't. We really try hard to not do that. Education of guests is like not a sentence in our in our kitchen in our restaurant. Um, and we just think about I don't know. We just think about like what we want to do. We trust our instincts, and we just try to have a really great time with it and like quality and consistency those are the two like words that we use a lot i think if you have a quality product it's going to speak for itself and if you can deliver it on a consistent basis then you're going to win people over
3: Before we went on air, you mentioned that today is your day off and that the restaurant is closed today. Yeah. That's amazing. It's it's not something that you always find in Mm -hmm. in restaurants. And there is this work-life balance that people are always trying to achieve. And obviously you've made the decision uh, to be closed for one day a week, which gives everyone a a Mm much-needed breather. Of course, when you look at the monetization of a seat – And you talk about a service. So now you've gone from like an all-day cafe open seven days a week, breakfast, lunch, dinner. We're gonna, you know, crushing it. We're gonna do coffee now. We're gonna do pastries here. We got Mm -hmm. a sandwich there. And now, really, you've got six nights a week to do dinner. Right. Um, So there's that work-life balance, but there's also, are you looking at the bottom line and what what are the what are the thoughts there with um, Samantha, your partner, and how much of that kind of business decision plays into your daily life.
4: Yeah. Um, I think Samantha and I got really lucky with one another. Um, she is fantastic with numbers. She lets me do whatever I want. Um, and so I don't take advantage of that. We don't waste a single thing in our restaurant. We compost everything we can possibly compost we create like three bags of garbage a week we recycle we have family meal that utilizes everything we are pickling everything down to dill stems and then juicing the parsley stems for the bar do you know what I mean? like there's no waste uh food cost is low so it means i can pay my cooks a little bit more and yeah we're an independent restaurant margins are really 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 small but we've figured out what's important to us and we're doing our best to make all of those things come true and so I didn't get into this business to be a millionaire. Um, if I did, then I would be a totally different cook. I'd be in a totally different restaurant. So we just we know what's important, and we're focusing on that, and we're making that happen.
3: Uh, I'm curious about your leadership style in the kitchen, and you're working with cooks. You've many times now described it as teaching and collaborative, and yeah. you know working together. Um, do Do cooks put things on the menu ever? Uh, How does that work? How does that process work in your kitchen? Um, How does a dish come to be at Otway?
4: Yeah. Okay. Uh, So it's definitely a collaboration. I kind of like, I will give them the end game and then we will all take our personalities and our memories and our likes and our dislikes and our palate and bring all of that to the table. Um, We've been working on this dish for the last couple of weeks, and I'm like saying weeks because I keep going back to the drawing board with it. Like I had it in my head, raw beef sandwich, and that's like all like raw beef sandwich. And we went through maybe three or four different variations of this raw beef sandwich until we finally got to the right one. And we just keep on going back to the drawing board until everybody's happy because they have to pick up the food, and if they don't like it. And the food's not going to taste great. Um, so it's, it is a collaboration. Yes, I kind of lead them down the path of like, okay, this is our concept. This is what we are. This is who we are. Um, now have fun with it. Um, and, of course, seasons. So it's definitely a collaboration. And, you know, um, leadership style, you, you have to you have to let people be creative. For years and years and years, like, cooks are just kept down and kept down and kept down don't think about anything, don't be different, don't stand out, make the food exactly how I want it to be made. And then all of a sudden, they're like sous chef, and they have no idea how to do anything. So when I teach a cook something, I honestly don't think to myself, man, I'm going to benefit from this. I think... If I can teach them how to make mayonnaise, if I can teach them how to emulsify something, if I can teach them how to get through get through a great service, then they're they're going to succeed at their next job. Their next boss is going to be like, man, they really know what they're doing. They're a good cook, and that's what that's what's important
3: to me. I like the look on a cook's face when you teach them how to do something and they do it properly, oh my God. and then they realize that they don't need you next time they do it. I don't have kids, but I imagine it's like when you release the back of the bicycle. Yeah, if I could
4: actually produce tears, I would probably... I love it so much.
3: There's this really cool moment when they can see what like making it, when emulsifying something properly and when, you know, a sauce doesn't break and they realize, wow, there's a cool scientific process that happened that I I don't really understand, but also now I have something in my repertoire you know know. and that's a very it's amazing that's a very cool uh moment um we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back with more with claire and we're going to talk a little bit about how you came to get involved Mm -hmm. in cooking uh stick with us here on heritage radio network
1: the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General So's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine and how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow Making the Chinese American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cooking machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at
3: mofad.org. Welcome back to The Line. We're here with Claire Welly from uh Otway she was previously the chef of Tilda all day which was in the same space it took a brief hiatus and then reopened as a dinner only restaurant where she is now leading the kitchen along with her partner Samantha who she was also partners with at Tilda so Claire I wanted to ask you about baking yeah when Tilda launched there was a pastry program, I guess that's what you'd call it, mm-hmm. and uh, you were getting a lot of great acclaim for a lot of pastries that you were doing. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, are there any that you really loved that stick out in your mind as sort of like a favorite? And uh, And... And have any, has anything carried over to Otway? Or did you sort of reinvent every baked good that you're using now?
4: Um, I was really proud of what we accomplished at Tilda when it came to the pastries. Um, I had an amazing, amazing uh, assistant. Her name is Allison Young. And so together we we were the pastry program. But I'm not, I am not a baker. I am not a pastry cook. Um, I I'm actually terrible at it. At least I think so. Um, and so it, I, I happen to be okay at it, but I don't love doing it. So when we opened Otway, people would, you know, Oh, are you going to have this? You're going to have this? And I made it very clear from the beginning. No. If it was done at Tilda, if we did it at Tilda, if we tried it at Tilda, if you ate it at Tilda, you would never... I'm sorry. I Thank you so much for liking it, but you're never going to have it again.
3: So people wanted... People were coming in asking like for the pistachio. Still, still. Yeah.
4: Like, I dropped bread last week, and somebody was like, oh, man, I wish that was the morning bun. And I was like try the new stuff Uh, yeah yeah i was like guys like if you if you really like if you really love that just wait you know just wait and so i think we did kind of build a really great reputation with just like the fact that we would have quality products so just trust us to make something
3: great so you brought a loaf of bread i'm staring at it right now tell me about it tell me about the baking and fermentation process that so you have a you, everyone gets bread at the table when they come. Everybody in for dinner? gets bread. Cool. Like. So tell us a little about, about the bread. Why? Why do you do it that way? And how do you do your bread?
4: Okay. So uh, I mean, you know, you talked about how like Tilda filled a niche. It had coffee. It had pastries. Yes, but also like in our community in Clinton Hill, there is no bread. There is no bread, and. Um, so we knew that it was definitely something that we wanted to do. Um, I want the cooks to be able to learn bread and take that to their next restaurant. If they needed to create bread for their dinner service, they're going to be able to do it now. So, um, it's a naturally leavened bread. Um, I'm, I'm Norwegian. So of course it's going to have rye and caraway and everything in there. Um, so it, it is, it's a, it's a naturally leavened 72 hour process and, we 're just really proud of it it 's a really high hydration dough, and we have we don 't have a deck oven we don 't have a proofing box. We have literally like a bus tub um, we have an oven that doesn 't work that we use as a proofing box, and then we have um, Banneton molds and that 's just what like we created a product. In kind of an environment that you don't think should have a product like this.
3: So, you, what's the bake for that style of bread? Like, is it what temperature? And- yeah.
4: So it's since it's a really high hydration, it's like four hundred and ninety-five degrees Fahrenheit for thirty-eight minutes. So it's like. Very, very, very hydrated, but we're able to, at such a high temperature, at least create a
3: great crust. So d- it doesn't get sprayed with water or anything to we, develop the crust? We or? do
4: we do spray it a little bit with water. Um, we do spray the oven when mm-hmm. it goes in there to help with, um, you know, oven spraying, but... Um, because we are using it the same day and it doesn't sit in plaster wrap because plaster wrap kills crust um, it just cr- it has such a nice natural like cr- like crunchy crunchy flaky We have to decrum the tables like four times a night so
3: so everyone gets that on, everybody gets on, bread on their table I believe in that's getting a, bread I'm that's sorry. a nice way to start. I'm off not the gonna meal. charge you
4: six dollars for bread. I'll make the cost up somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I won't throw something away. I'll reuse a product. If it means that our guests are gonna get bread, like bread for free that's good at least i think so then i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it
3: i want to take you back to your childhood in baltimore okay i want to hear a little bit about what it was like growing up and do you remember a moment when you first got interested in food yeah when was that
4: um I grew out, up outside of Baltimore in a really, really small farming community, uh, and you're basically told at a really young age in our public school system, "What are you going to do? Pick your career, and then all of your classes for the rest of your middle school, high school um, life are is geared towards that profession."
3: Sounds like a smart way to learn.
4: I guess. I guess, <laughs> it's, I guess it's like very French, but at the same time, it's just very like. You have to pick something. Make cause, a choice. Yeah, make a choice. And it's usually like nursing or teaching or, you know, farming. Yeah. Um, and I, I picked cook. I picked cook at 14. Um, I don't know why I knew I wanted to do it. I did grow up in a household with like my mom having dinner on the table all the time big sunday breakfasts um she always loved cooking was always into it my dad used to take me to the grocery store and send me into the produce and was like pick whatever you want he's like what have what haven't what haven't you tried yet pick something cool um We'd always go out to really nice restaurants. Um, And so I guess my whole childhood was kind of geared towards it. And then the fact that I just really love to work. I love to be disciplined. I don't know if it's my ADD that needs to be under control or something, but I just, I need the rigor of a kitchen. So at 14, I I picked cook.
3: So at 14, you make this choice. And did you pick up a job somewhere? I was a dishwasher. Where at?
4: At a country club. A golf course country club with a buffet, you know? Where
3: all the greats start. Big, big country club. Oh,
4: gosh. Big smiles, thin slices, baby. Like <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I remember making cantaloupe swans and um, prime rib on Sundays. And I did the waffle station. And I made omelets for people with a big toque on. Um, my sous chef was having sex with somebody in the walk-in. It was awful. But I loved every... I remember my first... I got my first burn there. Um, so... Like, yeah, country club golf course.
3: (laughs) So how do you end up at the CIA?
4: How do I end up at the CIA? Uh, My parents, my uh, my parents said, Claire, you need some sort of higher education because I don't think for years I wanted to be a lawyer, wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. And all of a sudden I go to my mom one day and I'm like, no, mom, I want to be a cook. And like the look on her face. So (laughs) I I exactly. So I think they didn't know if it would stick. So they told me that I needed some sort of higher education. Um, even though the CIA is a culinary school, I still walked away with an associate's degree.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, so I went there um, instead of going straight into the workforce, which I wanted to. Um, I was going to stay for bachelor's, but then I just saw how unneeded it was. Sorry, CIA. It's just, it's not needed. Um, and so I just went right right into the kitchen.
3: So where's your first job after you get out of the CIA?
4: First job, first job, first job. Out of CIA, first job out of CIA. Was it at
3: Moss or no?
4: Um, first job out of CIA. No. Okay, so first job out of CIA. I met my significant other at culinary school. He's also a, a cook, and um, I was gonna go to Alinea. I was gonna go to. I was gonna work at a restaurant in Baltimore for a little bit that doesn't exist anymore, and then I was gonna go to Alinea. and then I was like. No, I think I need to go be with you in San Francisco. So I moved to San Francisco and I started working at a really great restaurant, which I don't even know actually all of my restaurants that I've ever worked at, like don't exist anymore. It's <laughs> re- I don't know what it is, um, but it was called the fifth floor mm-hmm. and it was a Michelin starred restaurant in a hotel and it was amazing and it was fantastic. And I had a great chef um, and I got to move up the stations and work and it was really nice.
3: You in New York, you've been at Moss Farmhouse, Gwinnett Street, yeah. Rebel. Yeah. Uh, which one of those experiences really stands out for you? Is there a certain um, moment that you can share, or is there sort of a, a really hard day that you had at one of those places that you think helped Gwinnett construct Street. something for you?
4: Gwinnett Street, and I say that with full confidence, without a doubt, I still talk to my line cook, to the to like. Uh, Michael Lombardi owns a restaurant um, in Boston and he is crushing it right now it's called um, SVR I think and um, we talk all the time Dan Harris my one of uh, my meat cook was in when I was on Entremet he was the meat cook and he's in um, Chicago crushing it right now Um, Ayaka Guido is like my best friend and she was Garmo and Entremet and she's at the sous chef at Little Park Gwinnett Street was the most beautiful moment in time you could have ever imagined
3: the plates that were coming out of Gwinnett were pretty wild. Yeah, and Justin's a, so talented. A lot of things that were happening there were maybe you could say a little bit ahead of their time. Also yeah, I think so. Per, I agree with you. Perhaps people were uh, they thought it was one thing and they thought it was another yeah. thing. Um, do you did you take any of your plating style? Did you learn things about plating at Gwinnett Street? Because you you have you have very beautiful plates. They're very. They're precise, mm-hmm. but they don't look overly precise. And yeah. we're on radio, so hopefully everyone can go look <laughs> exactly. at at, you know, the Instagram and and look at some of the plates you put out, but I'm curious about your philosophy of putting things onto a plate. Mm-hmm. How precious are you about that process yeah. and uh how do you work with your cooks in the kitchen to either mimic your movements or not? Or is there a bit of freedom there?
4: Absolutely. So, I mean, I think either you're a plater or you're not a plater. Um, I've always had chefs that wanted to plate their own food, and you could really never touch the food. So I didn't get a lot of hands-on, like, muscle memory when it came to plating. Um, I actually, I'm I'm one of those non-platers. I will cook the food. I will put it on a sizzle tray for you, and then I will pass the buck because I'm actually not really great at it. Um, and so we do have a lot of freedom. You can kind of do what you want to do, but it's just—I don't know—it's very natural. I try not to fake it because I feel like as soon as you, as soon as it looks over-designed, it looks like you really tried. It's not natural and it's not instinctual. So we just go for like, how do we get on the plate? Hot food, hot plates. Um, how, how do we get it out to the guest in a beautiful, timely manner?
3: That's always something so funny to me. It seems like when the top priority becomes how beautiful the plate is, people mm-hmm. forget that someone's got to eat it. And hot it, food, hot plates. It, it hits your table, and you're like, "Wow, that looks amazing!" And
4: yeah, well, now my
3: chicken's cold. Now no, and
4: now, nobody's eating the food right away.
3: Right. There's another five ten minute gap. of yes. Structuring the plate properly. Oh my properly. god!
4: Making the lighting okay and finding like which filter you're going to use for your Instagram post. Just eat the food. But people. well, you should not have
3: food. made the lighting in your restaurant so good Then eat people the wouldn't take so many pictures. I just turn the lights
2: off. Uh, <laughs>
3: Uh, so beyond that, I'm curious you know what what are things that you um have found in sort of the new york you you worked in new york d c San Francisco you know yeah. basically the top food cities. I'm curious about if there's anything happening right now, a trend or you know a- any of the movements forward in the in the New York food scene that you don't enjoy mm. that you're hoping to get away from yeah. or that you hope will end well,
4: we talked like before the break about. We do dinner. Like, come in, have a snack, have an appetizer, an entree, cheese, and please, dear God, get dessert. Don't go to your bodega. Don't get a pint of ice cream. Get the $9 dessert. Okay? It's worth it. Um, We do dinner. The format of the menu is, like, very flowing. Like, come in, get three courses. Um, And so we are trying to give a guest, a very specific experience. You've chosen our restaurant to have a specific experience. Please don't come in and try to make it something it's not. And that's the problem with small plates. <laughs> my segue.
2: <laughs> that's my
4: problem with small plates. Um, you are giving the guest, the diner, so much power to create their own experience. And then they're going to walk away and they gonna be like, wait, what did I have? When did I have it? Why did I pay $6 for bread? What was that? You know?" And so just come in. Forget everything that you've learned about dining in the last three years and just come in and have dinner and trust us to do it well.
3: You spend all your time in the kitchen. Your mm-hmm. partner spends all the time in the kitchen. I am curious about how you both can find a little time that's away from the restaurants and are you able to turn it off? A, a lot of people that work in this business... yeah. They're good at what they do, and you're probably good at what you do is because you know your your mind is racing, <laughs> yeah. right? You're always thinking about how to make a plate better, how to make the restaurant better. I'm curious, how do you find that little bit of you time, mm-hmm. and how do you turn off the restaurant literally for the day?
4: Um, I I don't I don't turn it off because if you ask me who I am and what I do. I I am a cook. It's who I am. It's not just what I do. Um, I still write lists. I, if I leave something at my house, I get so angry that I have to turn around. Um, I FIFO my fridge. Like, it's just, I am a cook. Um, so you don't turn it off. You just learn what's important and when it's important. Like, Can that call wait? Can that dish wait? You know, today is my day off and I'm going to spend it with Patrick and things can wait. You know, I've realized that in the last couple of years. Things can wait.
3: When you're not at your restaurant, when you're not at his restaurant, is there somewhere where you both like to go together somewhere uh, in Brooklyn, in Manhattan, it doesn't even need to be in New York, that you found has been a really memorable, wonderful dining experience for you?
4: Mm -hmm. Um, We love uh, Asuka. We love, I mean, like, I'm Scandinavian. Um, We love going to Edinburgh and sitting in the basement surrounded by exposed wooden beams and sheepskin and, like, just drinking amazing wine. Uh, It's so relaxing, it's so wonderful. We go to Reynard all the time because we have a whole bunch of friends that work there and they treat us so well. Um, So, right now, like, just because we're around food all the time, Wine is kind of very interesting to us. It's a new frontier. It's something else to learn. Um, so anywhere where there's really great wine, you'll find us.
3: What's something that you're drinking right now that's really got you excited? Um, are you are you do you, do you do natural wine? Yeah, or? everything, everything. Okay. Um,
4: although I am a bit of a francophile, but like, I don't know. I had a really amazing Aligote last night. Um, it's just like the workhorse grape of Burgundy and so for me it was just I love it. It was crisp. It was clean. It was mineral but it was like a little foggy and it had like really nice natural sediment. Um, yeah, I just anything. Ciders right now. Like talk about a great shift drink. Like give me a New York cider. Um, give me a Basque cider. So Yeah, it's like the new frontier. All the cooks, we do all of the wine tastings together. That entire wine list is a complete collaboration. Um, No longer are you just watching your owner drink alone in the dining room with a wine purveyor. Like, we are out there. We are doing it. We are experiencing it because I want them to have that knowledge of wine.
3: How much do you let the wine be a, sort of a driving force into the seasonality of the dishes and of the restaurant? It has
4: to be. It has to be because there people go to restaurants for very different reasons. It's not just all about the food. If you ask me what the most important thing is at Otway, it's the service, hands down. Um, the food takes a back seat, and I'm and I'm saying that as the person that creates the food. Um, the wine mirrors the food, just. So well, at least in my opinion, because we pick really high acid, very um, enjoyable approachable wines. Um, so it really helps with the complete experience
3: you say you're a you're a planner, you make lists yeah, I'm curious how far ahead do you think about Otway? How far ahead do you think about you where you where you might be? do you have a a thought on where? a year from now five years from now you may be in the context either of Otway or maybe not even New York City
4: it's still so young it's so infantile that I can't think about it quite yet like the, what I'm thinking about right now is what I'm going to do with zucchini. You know, like, uh, I have to change my large format dessert this week, and I made rice pudding yesterday, and it was terrible. And I realized that I can't make rice pudding, and I don't know how to make rice pudding, so now I have to think about something else. So, no, I, I mean, I, one of my cooks is going to have dental surgery on Friday, and I'm thinking about that because I want it to be okay. I'm not, it's not about me. It's not about me.
3: Tell everyone where they can find the restaurant.
4: Um, it's in Clinton Hill. It's off of Fulton, two blocks down from the Methadone Clinic.
3: <laughs> Claire, thank you so much for joining me here on the line. It's, it's, my been pleasure. A, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Everyone, please go and check out the restaurant. Uh, join us here on Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for a new episode of The Line.